My father was born in southern Minnesota, as far south as south gets, and uh, you're still not in Iowa, right outside Elmore, Minnesota. On the border, he grew up um, on a farm. They grew up you know, pretty, pretty poor. He went, to, uh, he went to country school, as he called it. I don't know if that's like charter school, but... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's the kind of school where there's not a lot of classrooms. Uh, I went to country school, graduated high school, entered the, um, the Air Force, and uh, was assigned over in West Germany, which fit him being 100% German. And, um, and over there, I, I don't remember, somebody here will, will, will probably let me know after Mass uh, who served, but uh, while over there, was in the... Uh, it used to be the late 50s, early 60s, and of course it was during the Cold War, and he was a, a sort of radio operator, and it, it was his job to intercept uh, coded transmissions uh, from East Germany, from the, from the Soviets, um, and, you know, hand those, hand those on for people to decode, etc. He said he got so good at it that he could listen to the ball game on Air Force radio and, and still write down the, the transmissions. He was a pretty smart guy. He loved airplanes, so he, uh, he started working uh, for the airlines and worked for the airlines until his retirement. Um, you know, at, uh, somewhere around, I think he retired a bit early, but somewhere around 65. So he worked for them for 40 some years, blue collar work, you know, being in the belly of airplanes, with baggage, and he was one of the guys who lost your baggage, probably. Um, air freight, and you know, just all kinds of stuff. I remember there was one time, uh, I believe I was, I was still in high school, and they were, the, uh, the airlines were hiring for, for the Christmas rush. And so he said, hey, you wanna come out and work with me? Earn some extra money, you know, for a couple weeks. I thought, okay, you know, sure, absolutely. So I did, it was horrible. And uh, it was just kind of an interesting experience. Years later, I mean, 20 years later, in a conversation, that came up again. He said, do you know why I had you come and work with me? I said, no, earn more money. I just all I was thinking, you know, as a teenager. He said, because I wanted you to not like it. I wanted you to have something better. Not that my job wasn't good. I mean, his job provided for my family and, and gave us great opportunities. I mean, he was the kind of guy who took pride in never calling in sick. He was the kind of guy who would work, you know, a 10, 12-hour shift and come home and then just find more work to do. I remember one, uh, I don't remember if it was, for some reason I think it was the summer, but, you know, it's so long ago, but perhaps that's irrelevant, but... I remember one time he said, well, you know, I need to reshingle the roof. You, you need to help me. And so dad just reshingled the roof because he could, you know. He was a carpenter's apprentice growing up, and he knew these things. And then uh, another time he just, he just uh, decided he was going to put in a sprinkler system in the front yard. I said, do you know how to do that? He said, no, no, I'll figure it out. And dug up all the rock and dug all the trenches and figured out how to put in a—and it worked, you know, it actually worked. 
My dad could do all kinds of things. It was amazing. You know, the, as a priest, you, you preach a lot of funerals. And for the first 14 years of my priesthood, I, I of course, preached a lot of funerals and, and uh, tried to find words and tried to connect uh, the best that I could. But after my father died in 2014, it gave me a whole new perspective on, on so many things. It was the first time that, you know, somebody in my life that close to me had died. And I'm sure many of you can share that kind of experience, that it, it just guts you, you know, that, that sense of loss, the sadness, all of the emotions. Looking back, uh, it happened, uh, I think when I was about 42. Now I'm really old at 49, and uh, half of you laugh at me every time I say that. But all the teenagers are like, yeah, you're old. <laughs> but I can look back now and I can see, you know, for a few years I was really thrown off. I mean, something in my life was obviously what it was, but, but my life was clearly, you know, just kind of came off the rails in many just different ways that I didn't understand. I, I didn't know what was happening at the time. And what I came to realize um, was that the absence of my father left, left a hole in my heart. I mean, the, the, that nothing else could replace when somebody that close to you dies, there's, there's no one else who can replace them. And, you know, I thought pietistically, well, maybe God should fill that space, you know. But I actually came to realize, or I came to, for myself, I, I, I came to believe, you know what, God has his space to fill. But that space for my dad is, it's my dad's space. And I learned to live with that absence because the absence was actually a way to remember him and to keep him close. What I discovered you know, through this experience is that I, I want that absence there because when the sadness does come back, it reminds me of the great love that I have for my father. In my, uh, in my room, I have a, you know, a dresser and everything, and, and on the dresser, I have this picture of dad smiling. My dad didn't smile. He, he, uh, he's, I remember him telling me one time, people just have told me my whole life I never smile enough that I always look grumpy, and I looked at him, and I said, it's your fault I'm this way. <laughs> I talked to my sister, and she said, yeah, same with me. So we all got it from dad just look grumpy, but we're not. But anyway, it's a really nice picture of him smiling. Then I have this, a smaller picture of him as a, as a very young man. And then I have a picture of he and I at um, my graduation from, uh, with my bachelor's degree, and then a picture of his funeral. And then I have a crucifix um, from his funeral. And I've learned to, to throughout the years, 
I mean, I see those pictures every day. They remind me of dad and, of course, the love that I have for him. And sometimes I talk to him. Sometimes I can hear him, you know, I can just imagine him laughing at me. You know, the other, I don't know, last month I I fixed a, a bathroom fixture with silicone stuff. I don't take after him in the fixing department. And I can just hear him laughing at me, thinking, well, it took you 49 years to figure out how to caulk. Good job. But it's, it, you know, at times it's like he's right there. And I'll talk to him and, and complain to him or something else. Some of you saw the picture that I emailed out, you know, as we went into lockdown. And I created a, an altar. It was actually a, it, it's not really a very complex altar, but dad built me a, a, a very nice table that I've used since I was ordained as, as an altar. And then in the alcove, in the, in the rectory, I have pictures of family, you know, pictures of my parents and my sister and her family. And um, I had, I still there, I have a book full of all of as many names that came in hundreds and hundreds of names and intentions that came in. The ancients, the ancient Christians, when their loved ones died, they'd go and at, at certain time, anniversaries, feasts, they'd, they'd go to the catacombs or they'd go to the gravesides and they would have meals together as though their loved one was still there. And it was no, no big deal to, to act as though, well, they, they knew that their loved one wasn't there, right? I mean, there's no mystery about that. They know their loved one has died, but honoring the dead and even speaking to the dead in, in a certain sense It's just something that we've always done. And the early Christians, right away, they would even ask some of, some of these people who had died to pray for them. Right away. It's even in the Old Testament, of course, Maccabees. But the early Christians would even on the tombs, they'd write, you know, Saint, whatever the sort of local saints, but in Rome, Saint Peter, Saint Mary, pray for Bob, you know, it's not a very good Latin name, but you get the idea, Bob Oos. Um, you know, pray for our father, pray for our mother. Right away, right away. It wasn't invented later, later on, right away. First century, Christians are asking other people who have died to pray for their loved ones. I also, in... in you know, in, a, in this alcove and by this, this altar, I have, a, I have a statue of the Blessed Mother. I actually have a couple statues of the Blessed Mother because I'm Catholic. You can't have just one statue of the Blessed Mother. You know, you have to have like five. Um, so I have a couple statues of the, the, the Blessed Mother. And it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I, I also have uh, other saints that I've, I've been close to over the years. Of course, my namesake, St. John, um, St. Benedict, my patron saint, has always been close to me. He just always keeps popping up throughout my life, St. Benedict, in different ways.
St. Padre Pio is another one. I've just grown up with this understanding that the saints are, are near us. They're our friends. I talk to my guardian angel all the time. I ask him to bail me out all the time. I do this prayer to St. Anthony when I lose something all the time. I learn that. So the, the Catholic culture that I grew up with, which, which, you know, was imperfect but beautiful, taught me that the saints and those who have died are still all around us. That the veil that separates heaven and earth is actually very, very thin. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, it ought to be encouraged that we maintain this connection with our loved ones who have died. And you know, the saints that we call saints are, are just other loved ones who have died. I was going to uh, talk about uh, the crisis of meaning and epistemology in the postmodern world as a way to defend our position of still continuing to have this uh, understanding of the saints. But, but as I was sitting there, I just thought, I don't even care. I mean, I kind of care, but I don't really care what the secularists think. What do I care? I don't care about people who don't think we ought to do it. I mean, I care about them, but I don't care about the position. This isn't going to change a darn thing in my life. I know. How do you know? I know. I know that the saints are praying for me. I've just had way too many experiences. I've had far too many experiences of my own, of, of loved ones who have died. I just have. And I know I'm not alone because you've shared with me your stories. These are not just mere fig figments of our imagination or fictions or psychological coping mechanisms. These are real experiences, and they're far too numerous to be less than real. And so we celebrate today the, the solemnity of all saints, of all those who have become saints. You know, there are those who are defined specifically by the church, but really everyone in heaven is a saint. And I thought, okay, well, how do I tell the people? How do you get there, though? How do you become a saint? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I could probably give you, I mean, I know the official thing of like two miracles and all that stuff, but I mean, you know, how do you get to heaven? And it's my job to help you to get to heaven. How are you supposed to get to heaven? Well, the way the Lord talks about it, if you just focus on Jesus, which is a, usually a good thing, <laughs> if you just focus on what the Lord said, he basically said, you already have it. It's already been given. Salvation is already given. It merely needs to be accepted. And the process of becoming holy has already begun when Jesus took on human nature, redeemed it, and then took it back to heaven, and then sent the Holy Spirit. This process of receiving the Holy Spirit and grace and etc. is the process of becoming holy. Holy. 
you know, I think that experience with my dad and then in the aftermath of that kind of gave me this perspective that becoming holy or becoming a saint isn't so much about us focusing on the destination, but on the journey. It's, it's really just about continuing to try. So, so many times in life we get knocked down. Sometimes our own causation, sometimes other people, but we get knocked down. And it gives us plenty of reasons to give up. I think the ones who become holy are the ones who just say, you know what, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep pushing forward. There's going to be times in, in your, your spiritual journey where you're hanging on by the tips of your fingernails to, to the faith. You've been there. I've been there. You, yes, I've been there. Holding on. But I kept holding on. And maybe the reason you're in that place right now or today is, or you've been in that place is so you can help somebody else know how to hold on, how to continue to keep clinging to Jesus. You know that woman, remember the woman who, who was following Jesus and, and she, she was suffering from hemorrhages for years and she's following the Lord and she just said to herself, if I could just touch him, if I could just touch his cloak, not even him, his cloak, the hem of his garment, the old soul stirrer song sung by Sam Cooke, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be saved. And sure enough, if we can just keep holding on to Jesus, keep trying, keep pushing on, be resilient and steadfast in our faith, we will be saved and we will be among the saints in glory.